Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. And if you or someone you know has been affected by sexual abuse, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre 24-hour helpline is 1-800-77-8888. Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Kavanagh Sisters, and we'd like to welcome you to our series of Count Me In Podcasts, where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast, we'll be talking to Shanida Daly, one of Ireland's most powerful campaigners for abuse survivors. In 2011, her father received a 15-year sentence for rape and sexual assault. Harry Daly of Lizzie Casey, County Clare, signed each of his 227 guilty pleas. He was a former prison warden and eventually he got five years suspended. Shanada is a founder of Survivor Side by Side, a support group for other survivors where they're safe to speak openly and reach out for help when needed. It's a closed Facebook page, so confidentiality is assured. Shanada bravely met face-to-face with her father in prison before his release using restorative justice and continues to support survivors and campaign for the badly needed changes around sexual abuse. How are you, honey? <laughs> um, just for anybody who's lived under a rock for the last number of years, I'm just going to start by... Um, asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, about how you got involved in the Facebook page and how that's going for you. I went to court, had a brilliant day, seeing my dad going to prison. I was overwhelmed, as happy as a pig and shit. <laughs> and I came home and the detective in my case had said to me, be very careful after every high there's a low. And I thought, no way, I'm on top of the world, nothing can go wrong. Then you come away from it and... Nobody contacts you, first of all. You're just like, you're like, oh my God, someone's always in contact with me anymore and what's going on? Because I kind of, kind of become a social pariah. I just felt alone. Like, no one talked to you at all. I didn't know anyone that had been sexually abused. I didn't know anyone that had been to court. Nothing. And so, sorry, Shanada, you didn't receive any counselling prior to that, did you? No, there was no counselling. Oh, I've been to the rape crisis centre a few times over my life, but nothing to do with the poor kids. I started looking up things to do with stories in the papers. I was massively depressed. None of my siblings had been abused, thank God. They couldn't understand what I was saying. There was nobody, so I started reaching out. I reached out to you, and I think you were kind of the major ones then, you know, that were public. We still are, honey. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) Two different people had come to me and said, listen, you need to watch a late late show from the other night because these mad crazy ones on there exactly like you. They're really happy. You know, there was no like doom and gloom about the whole thing. So I looked it up and I seen you on it. And then the infamous uh, This Morning one with you as well, I'd seen that. I reached out to you and then you don't feel as alone. So then in 2016, it was actually through a friend, Alison O'Reilly, who's a reporter, she had said about having a press conference in Limerick over this side of the country. So there was myself and two of the Whitrow sisters and Lorraine Mulvey. So we were having a conference more or less saying, uh, don't be afraid to come forward, you know, have no shame. That's always been my thing. The shame is not yours. You know, the guilt is not yours. Never be ashamed. Don't let anyone be ashamed. So the reporter simply said, um, 
how would people contact you? So at that moment, the page was made. Yeah, the Facebook so page. Yeah, it's four years old now since last month. Yeah, right. Very good. And how many people are accessing this page? There's 1,700 on each. Yeah. And it says at any one time that there can be a thousand active right. on the page. And on this page, do people tend to uh, just observe or would they get on and actually ask for help? Or do they private message? It's either one or the other. Either someone's going to come on and it's full out there, they put everything up, or it's they sit there and a private messaging is massive on the page. And that takes it's an not- awful lot of time. How do you manage to fit that in with your life? You have children, don't you? Half a dozen. Well, the older three are growing up. I constantly have my phone in my hand playing Candy Crush. That's as simple as it is. And I see the notification coming up and I'll go in then. And then last year, I think it was, one of my small kids ended up with um, diabetes. And one of the other fella was being assessed for autism. So just worrying about the two of them and going to meetings and appointments and all that, I... I'd ask Laura Withrow to become the other admin on the page because it's kind of like my baby or something, the pages, and I yeah. run it in a certain way and I like it that way and I needed to know the person that I was going to trust to do it yeah. would do it my way. So Laura is there and then this year, um, True Meeting Roots, we we met each other for a, at a year a year ago at her exhibition in Dublin and I made her an admin on the page because she knows me well enough to know yeah. And if she's any questions, we all we all message each other saying blah blah blah, and yeah. yeah, we all get on together. But I had to give responsibility over to other people as well. How does somebody become a member of the Facebook group? Just look it up, and it'll come up in the search, and then add. And then one of us is nearly always online to approve. And tell me this: Do you have you to date received any counsel? Um, no, not really, to be honest. Do you feel that managing this page? is your therapies yeah 100 percent. and do you from time to time have to take a break from it is it impacting you on a on a level that is taxing or difficult for you no people would think that it is it, it isn't it doesn't is i always say to people there's nothing you can say to me that i have not heard before right well if it's not the facebook page would it be the facebook page and every other piece of work you're doing because you never stop like you connect with every single victim in Ireland. You're always connected with somebody. You're always stirring the shit with the ministers, with the government. How many letters do you write a week to everybody? You have to keep them on their toes. No, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. I'm just saying it's not just a Facebook page of you. I think after the court case and after the depression and you realise who's important in your life and who isn't and everyone that's in my life understands my need to do this. And the older kids are over 18. So they can help out with the younger kids. It's kind of a family thing. I know that the older tree wouldn't, we wouldn't discuss things in depth. But when I say, oh, I need to go, do you know, blah, 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 they like help and say, all right, I'll mind or I'll collect from the school for you. And we just work as a, a unit, really. They know it makes me happier. Yeah, that yeah. If I can just get information from one person and make a difference that I've seen the kids with the smiles on their face when they see certain articles, you know, where they know. So they're proud of you and at least yeah. you have a good support system there. Yeah. But when I first yeah. came out, Shannon, the, the, the difference in your case to our case, for instance, is when, when you first brought your father to court and all that, you had your mother, who you always felt was culpable in this, and that has to be very difficult for you. We didn't have that. Yeah. So what, what, tell me what that was like for you. 
I noticed this year I'm thinking a lot about um it's probably just because my little girl's 10 now like she's the youngest girl I have but that she's so stuck to me all the time and she wants to be doing everything I'm doing and I was just thinking you know about my mum that all the little stuff I do now like knitting and crocheting and all that crack I do all these things to keep my mind busy and keep it active so I was realizing that I learned a lot of these from watching my mum and stuff but like I'd sit down with my little girl and I'd go through it you know showing her how to do stuff whereas my mother never there was I could never push in but I didn't realize it as a child but after the whole court case I think it was more that my kids were cut out than me to begin with I think I was used to being hurt and I didn't like my children being hurt so that bothered me way more but then you know the questions go through your head where family and stuff didn't believe that she was still going to see him and stuff and then that was proved and that was another issue then and then she spoke to a journalist and said I should just get over it my dad was sorry for what he'd done and that just ripped my heart that night but I needed that and that was just before the page was set up and it was like I needed her to say it out publicly yeah so do you know the way you feel like you're the only crazy in the village I needed everyone else to realize I wasn't Shanita what do you actually think helped you through from the moment it came out that you made a statement to now how well you're doing and you didn't get counseling or therapy so what do you think helped you? Because you're, you're, no, you're way down the road, and we talk about this a lot, about how you have moved and how you're constantly moving. What helped you do that? I think realising there was other people out there that have been through the exact same thing and realising that the mother situation was very common of mothers staying with the abusers after their children have come forward. And yeah. also, I used to be part of this secret group on Facebook. There was like 97 people on it. And I think there was only two of us out of the 97 that had had our court case. And everyone else had been told no. And I was so outraged by it. It just started me on a, a rampage of finding out yeah. why people weren't yeah. getting to court. I remember, I think it was two years ago, I was doing a radio interview and... As you know, I'm pure straightforward. I don't really care what I'm saying. And your wanted said it's something you don't want to talk about. And I said, no, no, your grand, he can ask me anything he wants. And your man asked me, so can you tell me what your story is? And I kind of went, yeah, I was sexually abused by my father. Uh, he went to prison in 2011 and he's still there. And it was that moment I realized I didn't want to talk about my dad anymore. I actually started the petition to the Minister for Justice is what the interview was about. And I realized that I could do other stuff besides talking about my dad, that he wasn't the factor in my life anymore. Yeah, it's just great. It's a growth, but like there's so much personal growth going on. Would you be able to put your finger on what helped you do that? Or, or something you could recommend for others to do? Uh, if you feel that something worked or benefited you, is there something you could say to others? I think the depression was a massive thing. I went so low. Like I remember sitting in my bedroom with my eldest daughter and my sister explaining about my funeral and how important it was that it was invitation only, that nobody was allowed to come in and look at me in my coffin. Do you know, and, all this, and the two of them sitting there, and I was deadly serious, do you know, like as if I was ordering food. Yeah. And they were kind of looking at me. And then, I don't know what it was, I just, I said, I can't keep them going on like this, like not washing, not changing my clothes, not leaving the house, having no interest in life, getting up looking at the clock, going, oh my God, I have to stay up for another 10 hours. And I just stuck in the headphones and went for a walk around the block for 10 minutes. And then 
it ends up being an hour and the music was getting happier and happier as I was going along. So then when my son started uh, play school, I started walking over to McDonald's every morning to get a coffee and that was my routine. And just, I grabbed the paper, it was on the counter, it was free and I go through it. And I realized then that the people that weren't there when I was sad weren't welcome to be there when I was happy. And concentrate totally on yourself. So I hate myself and I was always say I was only living for my kids. And then suddenly one day I said, oh my God, I'm actually enjoying life. But yeah, I think you have to go into yourself and realize what is destroying you. So Shanita, you, as you said, you deal with the Facebook page and you have lots and lots of people on there looking for help. What would you say are the main issues coming up on the page? The first ones is when people have made statements that they actually don't know what's going to happen after the statement. Yeah, they so don't know how long. The other common thing is people being rejected by family once they've spoken out and been called a liar. Nine out of ten people are writing about that. Right. And even if people do believe them that they can't talk to them, I don't think I'd ever sit down and have a conversation that way with them. I'd only talk to another abuse victim. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only way I'd feel comfortable. So do you witness on your page benefits and growth because of the connection and the real the knowing you're not on your own and there is support there and also indicating the enormity of the problem when you look at how many people are on your page even. Can you witness or in any way measure or tell that people are actually benefiting from the contact? Yeah, you would. Um, it's like I could be talking to people for two or three years and then the court case comes up and then, you know, you're constantly following them. Yeah. And then people could be sitting on the page for a year saying nothing and then suddenly they get the strength to come forward, you yeah. know, with their own little story and or another story resonates with them. Like, I remember when I was reading your book, your first book, right. I was like, oh my God, they're in my head. Do you know, the <laughs> exact same stories, the way you think about them, everything was the same. And that's what a lot of the stories you're looking at and going, oh my God. And then I know that this person is going to hit a dip, but you can see it all coming. Yeah, because we're more alike, aren't we? In a, in, although all of the experiences are different, they're all unique, but there's an awful lot of similarities in how we feel about it. I'd say that goes for lots of victims, but I'd imagine the rejected by family must be, like, we don't know that one. I know, and the mother. And it has to be like, gigantic. Yeah. Because Although, only, in saying that, we did lose our entire extended family. Yeah, so. we know somebody that, that was rejected We're, by the family. Can you see, say, how your family reacted? Can you, can you see that differently now? Can you see that their experience might have been a different experience than yours? Yeah, you see, I totally get it. It's like depression. You know, you can't understand depression unless you've had it yourself. And I can only imagine what a burden depression is on the other person that doesn't have it so likewise like my siblings weren't sexually abused but I know they went through an awful lot of trauma having to read stuff and see stuff and acknowledge that their father done this to their sister yeah, yeah. so it's I can't imagine that it is easy for somebody else and it is way easier to see see the person and go oh I don't know what to say to them and it's yeah. easier it's an Irish thing just avoid rather than talk yeah, it is. It's absolutely culture. It's one of those crimes where the entire family pay the cost, whether the whether the family member is the victim or the perpetrator, 
the shame yeah. uh, is spread out evenly between the entire family for the rest of their lives. The restorative justice that you took part in, um, can you explain to me, one, why did you even think of going down that road? And two, what was the process for you? What was it like for you? Well, first of all, it was in the middle of my depression. I decided that I wanted to see my father. I rang the prison and asked him to go on his visiting card. And they were saying, oh, I'd have to do it to him. And I said, well, I don't think he's really talking to me because I put him in prison. And then the, guard, the prison officer was like, oh. So this woman rang me back and she was asking me, was it restorative justice? I've never heard of it. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So my treasure was so bad, I didn't kind of really deal with it for a year, a year and a half. And then I rang them back and uh, we started talking and then she arranged to meet me in Dublin. So I went to meet her and um, she explained the whole process that my father would have to agree with us. That um, she was like, what is it you'd want to say? And then I got outraged that, um, so you telling me he'd have to know what I'm going to ask him. And she was like, yeah, and oh, I was livid. But then it made sense to me like that if I went in asking him something that he wasn't prepared to tell me and then I had to walk away with still not knowing. So, yeah, I'd listen to her. So we met like four or five times. I needed to go to Dublin or they'd come up here to County Clare and I'd get letters in. I'd been for counselling. They want to know that you're mentally able. I think that's why they meet so many times. So yeah. Joyce had told me a million times, you know, to put it all out there on the table, you know, vomit up your feelings, basically. Yeah. Leave it on the table for them. So that's stuck in my head. You know, things going to die down. And then I realised, you know, it was 2018, he was getting out. So it was kind of fast-tracked a bit more with me meeting them and then the date was set. And would you recommend it? Do you know what? I, I Some days, it's like Anton, some days I say yes and some days I say no because I feel it made me better, you know, facing him and knowing that he didn't have the grooming control anymore. There was no more feelings there. But then some of the stuff that he said to me, I feel, was he trying to mess up my head a little bit more? Do you know when I came out, like one of the things absolutely upset me so much and then I was like, oh my God, he's still a fucking dickhead. Do you know, he only said that to mess up my head more. So yeah. So, yeah, that's a bit like our father that it, it, it somehow makes it a bit worse that he's so calculating. He actually yeah. worked out your personality and he honed his grooming to match what he knew would yeah. work with your personality. Yeah. And it actually makes the whole grooming... Um, or insidious. Yeah, absolutely. It's sickening to think because up to then, particularly if it's your father, I think you like to give them a little bit of leeway. How long, sorry, how long did you say the whole process took from the first time you met you contacted the restart to practice to the time you I actually met your dad? 15 months. But you said it was speeded up slightly because of his release day? Yeah, kind of at the end. I take a break because when I was at home, I was saying, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want to see him. But I never told them that. And then yeah. I'd say, oh, I am going to see him. And then it was, no, I'm definitely not going to see him. And yeah. then I said to my cousin in the September, October, I said to her, uh, I don't know if I can do this. And she said, listen, one of two things is going to happen. Come up here, you'll go and see him, and you'll either have a heart attack and faint, or you'll come up and you'll go in and do it. So just come up and decide at the, on the day. And that's yeah. what i done. They met me at the train station, we had a coffee, and then we just walked over to Arbor Hill. Yeah, that's good. And it was in a normal, like, 
conference room and yeah that's very good that level of support yeah so what would you oh, say it was the amazing. best thing that came out of that for you freedom of knowing i didn't care about him anymore uh, like even when he went into prison i was like oh my god my poor dad happened to walk yeah. down the corridors and i went looking at him uh, you know and then you're like why am i feeling sorry for him yeah, yeah. but that was totally gone yeah and he's out now isn't he yeah and how do you yeah. feel about that well, do you know what? I was pissed off and upset because um, he told me at that meeting that he was staying in the Dublin area and then to find out that he's living in the west of Ireland. I was pissed off over that, but um, I have to say the, the guards and the probation services have been brilliant with me. The, what's it? He's the protective chief superintendent in Declan Daly and he's in charge of the Garda National Protective Services Bureau. He drove to Shannon to meet me and assure me that my father was being monitored, that I just thought, you know, oh, he's living near a crash. He's just allowed to do what he wants. But no, they've been brilliant, and they reassure me that he is being watched and monitored. Did you initiate that contact? Did they reach out to you? I can't remember. Twitter's a wonderful world, I have to say, when, <laughs> when something's annoying you. But no, I think I'd already had a meeting arranged with Declan Daly. But you're very proactive. For an yeah. average person, what would you suggest? If they don't know who to contact, they can contact the page because there's a number of people on there that know know who to contact. And we definitely know and we will give out the numbers. That detective, he is amazing. He's offered us two meetings a year. We go and tell him, you know, from victims' point of views, how it is with the guards. He's the one in charge of training them. So yeah. you said uh, the main issues, the common issues on your page was not knowing about where the statement goes and, and people rejected by the family. Is there anything else that you would say, you know, could Do you be know what? It, it was something that came up on the page there a couple of weeks ago and um, it's something that resonates with me and it was a, a man that had written in saying that he actually thinks that he's like asexual, that he's no interest in sex and I'm always telling everyone I'm asexual. Do you know, yeah. Uh, even though I and they presume them because I have six kids that oh I must be you know I absolutely have no interest in sex I never have I can't imagine that I ever will and then I'd be wondering was I just born this way or was I made this way but I got what he was saying and he was saying that obviously he's married and his wife wants to have sex but he doesn't and you know he was stuck in that conundrum of what does he do whereas I'm just like that and was he abused. Doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you um, consider that your abuse has caused that outcome? Yeah. I've often joked, you know, I'm, I'm the only person in Ireland that didn't come, come promiscuous after being abused. Do you know, like everyone else I meet, there's the promiscuous part of it. They've said yeah. with everybody or like that they're really into it. Like, and I'm just like, nah, no, no interest. Yeah. Well, and then I'd be thinking sometimes have I lost out? And I'm like, no. <laughs> no, because both responses are valid and, and completely understandable. Yeah. Right, you know, I still would say there's definitely a connection between not wanting sex and being abused. Being abused. Absolutely. I yeah. definitely think there's a connection. I, I wouldn't jump to the, you know, I'm asexual because I'm not interested. Like, I'd be looking at why you're not interested. So, you know, sex yeah. and animals cracked up to me anyway, the best of times. But. <laughs> You know, there's times when it would be really nice and really appropriate. And there is something you get the after yeah. sex. is a, It's powerful. And I don't think you can get it any other way. 
I oh, don't yeah. know. I, I wouldn't write that one off. I would actually think about that and see. We know there's a connection. I think it'd be yeah. hard for anybody who's being abused to look at sex healthy. Yeah, in, healthy in a normal, like what somebody who hasn't been abused would look at it. It's functional for most people who've been abused. Yeah, because if they're with somebody, it's a function that they feel they should, could have to, but have it's, to carry it's, it's out. It's absolutely loaded with triggers. And unless you go through every one of them, which most people don't want to do, they don't want to go near it, it would make sense that you would become asexual. It's a great way of not dealing with it. Last year, one of my kids, she was on the phone to me and she said, yeah, I learned that I'm not very affectionate because of you. And I said, what do you mean because of me? Because you were never affectionate in front of us. You never kissed or hugged your partners in front of us. Why would I be kissing and hugging my partners in front of my kids? You know, when I talk about it, I was like, that has been going through my head a lot lately, that I would never let anyone, I could be walking anywhere or with a partner that I've been with for 10 years and no one would know that I knew that person. Never a public display of affection or in the house or anything. Everything with my dad was secretive and no no one was meant to know so i continued that but sex for us would also be shame-based so that would be very reasonable why you wouldn't do public displays of affection well no i i would have and i would feel the same shame the thing that got me was when i wanted sex i felt awful i felt jesus prayed all my life for this to stop and here am i wanting it so i'm obviously a dirty bitch and i deserved it and then when I didn't want it, there's something fucking wrong with me. Like, because everyone, you should want yeah. you know, I, I would absolutely say there is a huge connection with what you're yeah. saying and the lack of it, anything. It's and not even just a connection. Design. It's absolutely responsible. For, yeah, it is responsible for, for, for where it is a you connection. are and how you feel. And like you're saying, you have to delve deep. It's the same yeah. goes that even though you're not interested. But I'd like to be not interested because I'm not interested, not because it's been inflicted on me. And again, that's nothing I'd worry about until it becomes an issue for you. Um, yeah, that's like, what I'd be like. If I yeah, don't want you're it, you're dealing not with enough in your life. You are aware you're dealing with sexual abuse on a daily basis through other people on the page. Been reminded of all of the issues, confronted with them. My eldest daughter, we'd often be laughing that I wouldn't hug them now or anything. Uh, their birthdays and Christmas. But I said to her, you know, when you became teenagers, you're horrible. Like, you don't want hugs. Yeah. You know, I'm very affectionate with the smaller kids. I think when, you're, when you've been abused as well, looking at your teenagers will be more of a trigger than looking at the babies. It's easier to be affectionate with, your, with the babies than it is with your teenagers anyway. Like my little girl is 10 now and, you know, her body's starting to change and that. And I'm just looking at the pure little innocence of her, you know, and thinking, Jesus. And then my little boy is six and, you know, he, Jesus, he sleeps in the bed beside me every night. Mm -hmm. And I just looking at his little innocent face beside me going, God, and just thankful that they're not going through it. Like, but they do definitely trigger me. Yeah, they would. It is amazing, though. There's no end to it. Like, we're discovering that even every time we have a conversation, we discover something new about ourselves. But that does not mean you're in pain for the rest of your life. It just means you're now becoming more and more curious. Whereas before, you would have just accepted that's who you are and that's part of who you are. It's about that constant challenge. Where did the thoughts come from? Do I own them? Were they given to me? That's a constant, especially with abuse victims. And especially if it's familiar, if it's in the family. You, it's that's going to be with you forever because you're always going to have to question: Is do I own this or was it given to me? 
And also, your children yeah. will always blame you for everything that's wrong with them. Up oh, to I point, know, I know. Up to a point, you can let them away with that. But what they're doing is, you know, sometimes it can be helpful because they're shining the light on an area you probably didn't even give any thought to and didn't recognise as an issue. Until she said that to me, why would I kiss and hug my partner in front of my children? <laughs> and do you know, the two of us were laughing at each other down the phone. But no, anything that is said to me, I, I rarely get defensive. Yes. Normally I will go away and think about it. And yeah. go, yeah, they're right. Just because you can't hug them, you have found your way of showing them how you love them. That's what I said to my daughter. I said, but you do know that I love you. And she goes, oh, God, yeah, we do. Like, But she was in having her baby there last year because she had a partner with her. I wasn't allowed in. And right. I was outside the hospital. And then she had the baby. And then one of my sons had arrived in while I was sitting outside. And uh, I said to him, Jesus Christ, I've done her five of to go through yet with this. And he goes, <laughs> yeah, but you've only wanted a daughter. Because I, I think that if you were up there with your partner, I'd still be the same down here worrying. When I was at the green room in the Late Late Show and we were having to park with Tommy Tiernan, right? Myself yeah. and Sophia and her friends. And when we were all leaving, everyone else was hugging. And I stuck my hand out, shake hands. And there's Tommy Tiernan, you know, in front of me. And he goes, oh, uh, no hugs for me. And I said, no, who do you think you are? Yeah. But I realised that I just don't hug. But see, you just have to look and see, is it a way of protecting yourself? Because that's what we did years ago. <laughs> Up until a year ago. Just awareness is the key. You're not wrong. Anything you did, you did to survive and get to where you are now if you notice that something's in your life now that's causing a problem then you have an opportunity to look at it you're not wrong in anything you do or did no it is about being curious and as paula said being self-aware yeah and delving into this is a belief this is the way i behaved let's see do i behave like that because i want to or because it's a learned thing through an abusive background so that's all it is it's and then you're aware that you're doing this because it suits you not because it's something learned through a bad experience. Just curiosity, Shannon, percentage-wise, male and female on your page? Oh, massive difference. I'd say it's 5% male. Right. right. Well, look, it's yeah, great that massive. you have 5% it's male. It's great you have 1%, but yeah, I, I was just curious. It's been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure talking to you, Shannon. It's great to hear about all the work that you're doing, you've done and you continue to do. And hopefully we'll get to talk to you again um, very soon. Right, I hope you realise just how wonderful you are and the work you do. Because it's the kind of work you don't get thanks for. Now, it's feeding your soul, and we know that. But you're helping so many people. That's it. And, and I'd really love you to sit with that and feel grateful for all you do. And realise that you're a wonderful person. That's hard for you to swallow. I can see you're struggling with that one already. But you know, it's true, it's so, so true. We'd like to thank Shanita Daly, founder of Side by Side, a support group with survivors of sexual abuse, for taking part in today's podcast. Thank you for listening. Hopefully some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel, or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey. 
only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no fake in it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing. You've been listening to the Kavanagh Sisters podcast. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email the Kavanagh Sisters at gmail.com.